Hi, and welcome to Raising Rochester, a periodic podcast of the Children's Agenda to talk about issues affecting children and families in our community and around the state. My name is Larry Marks. I'm the CEO of the Children's Agenda and proud to be the moderator for today's session. I'm joined today by Aqua Porter, who is the executive director of the Rochester Monroe Anti-Poverty Initiative, an initiative that the Children's Agenda is a proud partner for and with. And we're here to talk about poverty, children, and the unique and wonderful work of the Rochester Monroe Anti-Poverty Initiative. Welcome, Aqua. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. Nice to be here on a snowy Friday with you. Friday. Friday. Um, so let's start by, uh, I like to get into a little bit about your personal background before we, uh, dive into issues, but, but before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Rochester Monroe Anti-Poverty Initiative? Well, I have been with the Rochester Monroe Anti-Poverty Initiative for about two and a half years. And I will tell you that just yesterday we were in an executive committee meeting and we, um, we have a new executive committee. And so we were doing a little bit of like foundation work in history. And my team had gone back and created this timeline of our Mappy's history. And a lot of the people that were there have been with our Mappy for a long time. So I kind of used them to crowdsource whether or not the information on our timeline was right. Uh, and, it's, and it seems like that the inspiration for our Mappy was around the 2013 um, timeframe when Act Rochester put out a report that was kind of the seminal report that talked about how devastating and disparate poverty was in uh, Monroe County. And that, I think, led to uh, several conversations that like United Way was having with the state about trying to invest some money in child poverty in, in a way. Um, I think a visiting nurse program. Or, yes, or something exactly like that, right. right? Yep. And that happened around 2015. And, and apparently Luke, uh, Lieutenant Governor Hochul came to Rochester with money from or, or not even money, I think from a mandate from Governor Cuomo at the time that says, you know, we want to do an anti-poverty initiative in Rochester. And so 2015 sounds about the time mm-hmm. that things kind of got going. And then by 2000, later 2015, early 2016, there was a kind of a staff, the first executive director was hired and things got going. And so I think the origin was around 2015, but there are a lot of people around here who have been involved with this since you know, I would say 2013, so almost 10 years. Yes. Right? Yep, and I'm I'm one, one of those. Of <laughs> uh, so tell us, uh, what what is the mission of the Rochester Monroe Anti-Poverty Initiative? So we're evolving. I think early on, the mission was the one where we where people could, like, quote, that the mission was to reduce poverty by 50, 50% in 15 years. And we now have evolved, and we are... Uh, launching our kind of unity agenda with a mission that talks about breaking the cycle of poverty by shifting power to enable and um, create upper mobility for families and individuals. Those are such fascinating phrases. We're going to we're going to dig into those okay. in a little bit. But before we do, Aqua, tell us your story. I know that you grew up in Ohio before moving to Rochester, what was your childhood like and how did you come to live here? I had the best childhood. I had an amazing childhood. I had professional parents who came from, who came from Tennessee 
to Dayton after they graduated from college. Was that in the Great Migration years, or it was in the late fifties? So okay. they came. So it was kind of yeah. like I don't know the tail end, maybe. Yeah, I don't know that Dayton was kind of. It was probably on its way to Detroit, but my <laughs> but my dad was an engineer, mm-hmm. and so he was hired by Wright Patterson Air Force Base in engineering. My mom was a teacher. She had gotten her you know degree in English, but she was basically she was a teacher. And so they married and kind of came with friends who they'd gone to school with and settled in Dayton. Mm. And so we were, my sister and I were raised in Dayton in this beautiful little neighborhood. I tell people that it was a, it was a very, it was a black neighborhood that was kind of a experiment where they were trying to build or design a middle-class neighborhood for black professionals. Uh, in Dayton. And so my, my little neighborhood was filled with all these amazing black professionals who had finished college and needed a place to settle and kind of bought their first starter homes in this little neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And those were my friends and my my teachers were there. My church family was there. And it was like Fantastic. a little, little Small haven. Community. Yeah, it was amazing. That's was great. Amazing. And we and we still are, you know, the, the people that are there uh, in that neighborhood in, in Fairlane Park are still friends. Like we still kind of connect. And how'd you come to live here? So I went to college in Michigan. I went to GMI uh, at the time was General Motors Institute, now Ketter University. But it was a engineering school, basically, that GM, you know, founded to, to build and create engineers for the General Motors plants. And so after I finished school, I wasn't that enamored with GM. And I had gone to some career fairs and gotten an interview with Xerox. And came here on a, you know, that's when they used to actually fly you up to interview you, uh-huh. kind of wine you and dine you. And <laughs> so I uh, came up here and really kind of fell in love with the Xerox culture and took a job here. And that's how I got here. That's great. Yeah. And tell me more about that sort of career track of working at Xerox. And and you were semi-retired, right, before coming to Yeah. Well, I was kind of fully retired. <laughs> I was, I was, yeah, I had, so I, I came to Xerox in 1984. I was a newly minted mechanical engineer. I had my, my not, not a lot of women in that field. is Not it? a lot of women and fewer black women. Uh-huh. At the time I knew that there weren't a lot, but Xerox was one of those companies that was very progressive. Mm-hmm. And when I came to Xerox, I came in with a cohort that was intentionally designed and recruited to be a crop of young new engineers who they were trying to bring into the company. And ultimately over time, they they expected to kind of promote them up through the ranks so that they would have women, minorities at the senior levels in the engineering departments or organizations. And so we all started our Xerox journey at, in Leesburg, Virginia, at their big training facility. We went there for two weeks. We all got kind of oriented there. But there were like 50 or 60 of us. Mm. And about a third of us were women, a third were minorities, and then a third were majority white. Uh-huh. And so that became kind of my cohort, cohort. of friends. Uh-huh. And we were all coming to, most of us were coming to Rochester. A few of them went to El Segundo, but most of us came to Webster or to Rochester to work. And so I kind of had this kind of like gaggle of friends that I hung out with for probably the first, I don't know, three or four years. 
kind of amazing. I it assume that's really great for worker retention too. It was amazing. Is that you have a um, a cohort that you can't come up with. Exactly. That, that's great. And and so it made you not feel so isolated. Yeah. It made you not feel so unique, mm-hmm. right? Because there were other black women and there were other you know minorities and there were other, like we were just a great group of people. And there had been one cohort be- before us, so there was like a a group of us now in the community that kind of got to hang out together. And so that was really fun. And I do believe it was probably why they had good retention early on. You know, as you're saying that, it makes me wonder what's what's wrong with our country that programs like that don't exist anymore, that corporations like that aren't that kind of forward thinking, long-term thinking, yeah. that there isn't the emphasis on recruiting women and women of color and that we have such sharp divisions in our society on income and, and race, which I know the Rochester Monroe Anti-Poverty Initiative is here to address. Yeah, I, you know, sometimes I talk to some of my, like my mentors and my friends who have now re- really retired. And I, I say, especially in this community where I think Xerox was so progressive and, and kind of always kind of stood out and pushed the rest of the companies in this area to be progressive because you kind of had to in order to kind of compete. I think that one of the, and and I, you know, I was just talking to my son this morning, who's a pretty, he's been out of school for now five years and just really frustrated with how Mm. it feels to be a young professional um, and how the companies are just treating young people. You know, he says with disregard, with no empathy. And I'm like, I think we have gone so far to being about productivity and profit Hmm. that we don't think about people as much anymore. And I think that there was a point in time where I felt like Xerox was very, like I remember we used to have, there were these day long, I don't know what we called them then, but where they would talk about it was called employee obsession. It was a whole day that was really just focused on employees. Like everything was about the employee. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just remember them really being very pro-employee and kind and I thought very maybe patriarchal in a way. Uh-huh. Like taking care paternalistic of paternalistic. Yeah, yeah, paternalistic. And I don't <laughs> think you see that anymore. And so I think there was this thing where we don't want to be paternalistic anymore. We're going to move the other way. And now I think companies are shifted completely the other way. So there's none of that. It's very transactional. Yeah. Right? So what attracted you originally to Ramapi to come out of retirement? So this was, let's, you know, go back to May of 2020. We had been sitting in our houses for two months. I had retired at the end of 18. I had spent most of all of 2019 kind of just, honestly, I had been burnt out. And so 2019 was this just rest and finding myself. I took a yoga teacher training course. I was doing a little bit of yoga teaching, but I was really just like enjoying. I was on a few boards. And so I was, you know, kind of spending my time. I was doing a little bit of traveling and then 2020 comes. And in March of 2020, everything shuts down, sitting at home, not doing a lot of anything. I get a call that says, Hey, I know you're retired. But how would you, what would you think of doing an interim assignment as the executive director for our MAPI while we do a search for a permanent executive director? And I'm like, hmm, well, that sounds, you know, okay. They're like, for maybe 60 days or so while we just put the search and find an executive, uh, a permanent director. And I'm like, 
yeah, that sounds kind of interesting because I felt like, you know, I was getting a little restless just sitting there and I knew that I could, uh, I wasn't sure, by the way, whether my skills from corporate America would ever going to translate into nonprofit. I had thought about maybe at some point dipping my toe into the nonprofit world. I didn't really know how I was going to do that. And so this gave me the opportunity to kind of dip my toe in and see if there was anything there that I liked. And I knew it was going to be short term, mm -hmm. right? I knew there was going to be an end date for it. So I was like, you know, this is perfect. I'll do this for a few months. COVID will be over. I can go back and figure out what I wanted to do. And so that was kind of my plan. Uh-huh. Yeah. Little did she know. did I know, <laughs> right? And so 60 days turned into 90 days, turned into, you know, how would you, do you think that you might apply for this job? And I'm like, huh. You know, I had to kind of like really kind of rethink about that because that was not necessarily where I was headed. And when I thought about whether I could make a, I, for me, the difference, the thing that had to be important was whether I can have an impact, mm -hmm. like whether I was going to really be able to have an impact in the work that I was going to do. And I felt like I could have an impact, even if it was just convening people and getting people to think about the work in a way that was more intentional than I think mm -hmm. it had been thought about. Because there was a lot of good work that had gone on. Yeah. Right? Let's let's come back to, though, defining what the Rochester Monroe Anti-Poverty Initiative is. How, how would you describe what the uh, initiative is? I say that, uh, that our MAPI is a collective of willing stakeholders who want to come together to try to alleviate poverty, right? I think it is a group of people who may or are most likely working in their own way. They're already working on poverty in some of these, uh, what I would call these domains that we're kind of working in, whether it's healthcare, education, or housing, or workforce development. Like everybody's kind of taken a little swipe at it, mm -hmm. but... It's such a big, complex and complicated issue. It's so interconnected with other things that I think it's really hard that any one entity can do it by themselves. And I also believe that we have a lot of organizations that are doing a lot to do kind of, I would say, more crisis work or stabilization work, but not necessarily those who are looking at trying to do preventive yeah. or trying to kind of change fundamentally to think the foundations of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like our MAPI has that, can play that role, like not to replace any of the things that are out there today, because those are absolutely necessary. Yeah. Let's come back to, you were, you were talking about different sectors like workplace development and direct service supports. Mm -hmm. This is a, probably a good time to explain to our listening audience what collective impact means and what that what that sort of term of art is? Yeah, so collective impact is a term that's, I think, been around since maybe 2012. It kind of came out of some work that was already happening in different places. And when they kind of, when I guess some, you know, the really smart thinking people kind of went back and looked at it, it, there were these kind of common attributes of this work that said, hey, we're going to kind of label it and package it, and then we're going to be able to maybe replicate it, this model so that other organizations, cities, communities can follow it. And collective impact is really just bringing together a group of people who choose to work together and 
kind of work together under five principles. So one is that they have what we call a common agenda. They've agreed, they've all agreed on the problem. Most likely they've agreed on the direction of the journey of how to solve the problem and they are willing to work together. Two, they uh, agree that there needs to be some kind of a organizing or convening or facilitating function. And so there's usually a backbone group or staff or person who kind of provides the cat herding to the keep glue. this collective to, together, to yep. glue together. There is a sense of we know how we're going to measure the problem and we're going to hold ourselves accountable because they're not, you know, this isn't a paid function. So you kind of got to kind of share in the accountability and the measurement. The fourth is that we know that communication is super important. And so there's this idea that we have to maintain really strong communications amongst this group. And then the fifth is that we have mutually reinforcing activities. So we're already doing things that reinforce the work that I'm doing and something that you're doing. Those things together are mutually reinforcing and supportive. And so now you're putting them all together and potentially you have the opportunity to really address a bigger, more complex problem than any, everybody doing them kind of individually in their own little uh, silos. So what, Aqua, are some of the most significant accomplishments, would you say, of the Rochester Monroe Anti-Poverty Initiative from its inception to now? So some of this is going to be a little wonky, I think. But I think the conversation that in this community especially, that one of the root causes and the perpetual kind of reinforcing things here is structural racism, racism, right? Like, I don't, I think that that was a tough pill for the community to swallow, to see that these are some of the things that hold this in place and continue to hold this in place in lots of different, in lots of different ways, whether it's housing or, like I say, education systems, our police and justice systems, like we just continue to push on these things that are racist and discriminatory and there are there are those who are the victims of this racism in our community. So I think our MAPI has put that conversation in the environment. The ether, the ether yeah. Right? And yeah. force people to kind of at least reckon with it, even if they want to hold their noses like mm -hmm. they really push that conversation. Because I think that's the start yeah. of maybe trying to find some solutions. Yeah, it's interesting how things happen with synchronicity sometimes at the same time. I was thinking of how the culture really has shifted in our community on anti-racism and the discussion about race is at a whole different level. Part of that, I think, is without question, Ramapi's work. There's the exhibit that took place at the mm -hmm. Rochester Museum of Science on what, All around what that is time, race. Right? Yeah. yeah, 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 it was around that time. And obviously events with from Daniel Prude yeah. locally to George Floyd and the whole rise of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. There's been such a wonderful shift in the culture talking about it. Yeah, and I think that, you know, so for me... And hopefully taking action about it. Let hopefully me just say taking action. It. But I think even being able to label it gives people... Like, oh, this is what that is. You know, one of the things, I, we were just talking about this yesterday, is this uh, really seminal article that was um, published by FSG in 2012 about the water uh, systems change. FSG being a national consultant. A national consultant uh, around collective mm -hmm. uh, impact. But they published this article that was, I know, written by Peter, Peter Singe, who was the five discipline, five, five something. Disciplines discipline, of right? excellence or something, something like that. Like that. Yeah. Okay. Same, right, same book. 
So, you know, he talks about systems. Like, mm-hmm. That's kind of where his, his thinking comes from. And this idea that it, in order, if you believe that one of the reasons that poverty is so difficult to eradicate is because the systems that are there are built and designed in a way to continue to keep it in place. And that if you really want to start to eradicate it, you have to change, you have to address the systems. And this article would argue that there are kind of like six levers that you would need to attack to really kind of make the systems changes that are necessary. And some of those things are at the, what they would say are the explicit level, right? Like, so policy changes or behavior changes or changes in how resources flow are things that we can see and they're explicit. And it goes from three of these explicit things to something that's more kind of semi-explicit to things that are implicit that you can't see more, like more deeply embedded in, in, like mental models mm-hmm. like how people attitudes yeah and how people think about things and so that article would argue that in order to make transformational change you have to do all of the six of those and the hardest one mm-hmm. is the mental model changes that is kind of deeply embedded in people and how they think it's interesting i, I definitely see what i would call some interchange and some mutually mutual determination. I think mental models help determine policy as a for instance, but I also do think policies and resource flows and some of those structural things really affect mental models as well. Exactly, exactly. And so how do you kind of push on the explicit things mm-hmm. and knowing that you really ultimately want to get to the implicit things to keep them in, to make sure that you don't lose that momentum Let's get back. So you mentioned one major accomplishment of Ramapi is mm-hmm. being helping to drive this cultural shift in our community around race, racism, anti-racism. What else do you think would qualify as a major accomplishment of Ramapi? The one that's really the most recent for me is our wildly important goal that we did in 2021, where, and I will you know, in full transparency, I had just been hired in at the end of 2020. And by then I kind of knew enough to be dangerous, but I didn't know everything. I still don't know everything. But I knew going into 2021, one of the things that we needed to do was to convince the collective that they could do hard things and big things. And so my strategy was to come up with something that we would galvanize the entire collective around a goal that was explicitly achievable. Say maybe like, what are the components? What are some of the organizations or leaders that are part of this collective? Oh, so the collective today is made up of, let's see here, we have United Way, we have the Greater Rochester Chamber of Commerce, we have the YWCA, we have the Rochester Regional Health. We have University of Rochester and the University of Rochester Medical Center. We have ESL Federal Credit Union. We have the Rochester Area Community Foundation. We have the Greater Rochester Health Foundation. Just added uh, U.S. Ceiling Corp., which is a small private company that's owned by a, a, a woman. Um, we have 
the that's good. That gives you good housing authority. Yeah, it's a good sense of their pillars of the community, Correct. different sectors, business, Absolutely. nonprofit, funders. We have the, uh, both the city and the county. In mm. fact, our current chair is Corinthia Crosdale from uh, Monroe County, the deputy uh, county executive, and our vice chair is Simeon Bannister from the Rochester Area Community Foundation. So I think we have a very wide, diverse group of stakeholders. That's great. Who I think represent some of the big organizations in Rochester. Yeah. And the children's agenda. <laughs> not, to mention. not to mention. That, that <laughs> well, really it, into, you know, really can collectively make a difference. Right. Uh, so I, I took you a little far afield of the wildly important goal, but I wanted to make sure people understood what you meant when you said collective. So, yeah, yeah tell us about the accomplishments of Ramapi. So the wildly important goal was this idea that we wanted to, we know that one of the biggest, so one of the things that I learned, which I guess I didn't really think about, was that poverty is basically a lack of cash and money. And where do most people get money from is from income. And we know that for poor people, they have low incomes. And so, you know, if you get most of your income from a job, then we needed to go back and look and see, you know, what were the some of those barriers. And we we had used a study that the city and our MAPI did, I think in 2015 or 2016, that talked about wage disparities. And one of the things that we found was, especially for black and brown women, they were at a very high percentages in these low-wage healthcare positions, mm-hmm. right? Sub $12 an hour sometimes, really hard work, very caring profession, but really underpaid, and a job classification that was going to grow because the need was growing, right? People wanted to, you know, people didn't want to spend time in the hospital, People don't want to spend time in um, nursing homes anymore. They really want to kind of live in their own homes. And so some of these professionals are the ones who are going into homes and taking care of our elderly family members or developing disabled, you know, individuals in their homes. And that that field is just growing. I mean, it's one of the largest growing professions in the country, like a million people over the next 10 years are talking about. And we had a lot of those women, and a lot of them are jobs that are women hold, low paid. And so we really wanted to see if we could get those wages up because we knew that if we could get, like if we could get the wages up for these women who were in some of our poorest neighborhoods, maybe we could use their money that they're making would be reinvested in their neighborhoods, mm-hmm. right? Potentially you start to create some wealth and some opportunity and some commerce and, and maybe we could start to create stronger neighborhoods. So we started having conversations with the big employers who employed those folks and said, would you consider raising the wages of those home health aides and CNAs to $15 an hour, the minimum wage of $15 an hour? Because if you do it, you can change the power structure. Like you have the way to move the whole sector, those, all those jobs in this community. And we had that conversation with two of the big employers and one of them stepped forward kind of in the next month and said, we heard you. We think you're right. We know that this is not only a income issue, but it's a social justice issue, but we're going to, we're not going to just do it for that 
classification of worker. We're going to do it for everybody who's not at $15. We're going to raise everybody to $15 who's sub $15. And anybody that's at $15, we're going to go back and look at them so that we don't have people stuck there. Mm -hmm. So we're going to fix the compression, which was huge. So how many how many people are we talking about? At that particular employer or in no, general? No, just generally. So our, our goal was to raise the wages of 10,000 people to at least $15. We started that in early 2021, mm-hmm. and we kind of were putting it out there quietly, right, kind of trying to have this. And we got this big announcement from the University of Rochester kind of almost immediately, mm-hmm. and they that started the momentum because it kind of woke the community up because they were the biggest employer, yeah, right? And so... That started the that started the momentum, and then when we would get other people to say that they're I'm going to raise mine to fifteen dollars, we would kind of acknowledge them. So let's talk a little bit about the context for that those wage increases. We live in a city. The Children's Agenda talks about this quite a bit. How we are one of the top three cities in our area for child poverty. Somewhere out of one out of two children. Uh, close to one out of two, it's about 48% of children live in poverty. And what does the poverty landscape of the Rochester Monroe area look like to Ramapi? So in Roch- in the city of Rochester, it's about a third of our residents who are below the poverty rate, right? The, the federal poverty rate. And disproportionately black and brown. Disproportionately black and brown. Mm-hmm. And not only is it just the poverty rate we also have we are higher in extreme poverty which is half the poverty rate right Mm -hmm. we have an extreme poverty issue and we have a child poverty issue Mm -hmm. right so i feel like in in the city of rochester they all kind of come together right and i like i know that you all really focus your children's agenda focuses on child poverty but children are poor because their parents are poor no question (laughs) so (laughs) You know, we have to fix the underlying economic issues right. that cause children to be poor. Right. What is this new unity agenda that you've been painstakingly constructing? What What does that entail? What does that include? So you'll recall that when we started this conversation, we talked about collective impact, and I talked about these five attributes, and one of them I said was this common agenda or this we all have a shared vision. Our unity agenda is the common agenda that's personalized for Rochester. So we wanted a way for our community to come together to say, we understand what the problem is, and these are the things that we think we want to put in place in order to fix the problem, and we're going to unify around this, which is why we call it the unity agenda, because it's a unification of our community to say, we define this as the problem, we define this as our mission, and this is how we're going to attack the problem. And so we spent a lot of time the good part of all of last year, getting buy-in and and trying to develop what do we think the theory of change is? Like, what do we think needs to happen in this community to change the course, to turn the curve on poverty in Rochester? And so we've come up with kind of what we say are six conditions or six theories of uh, six pillars. And underneath those pillars, now we have defined what we're calling systems outcomes, which are a little bit Say, say what some of those pillars are. One of the pillars is around, um, so first of all, let's just go back to 
one of the things that we have said that we believe in this community and that we're unified about is that we want every resident in this community to be able to kind of live and thrive at their best life. Mm -hmm. And so we, we started with a concept called um, kind of targeted universalism. So we don't talk about that anywhere, but underneath this is a belief that we want everybody in our community here, all of the residents to be able to live their best lives. Mm -hmm. And we know that everybody can't do that. So let's figure out who's farthest away from that and then target interventions or programs specifically targeted to fix the problem with that particular population. Mm -hmm. So tar target that, right? And instead of broad brushing everybody with the same brush, we know that some people are, are going some populations are going to have different needs. Let's address them and those needs. Yeah. So we start there. We, uh, it, it's interesting. We do a lot of conversation internally at the Children's Agenda about targeted universalism. And a lot of us have recently read Heather McGee, um, the book, The Sum of Us. And she talks about drained pool politics, where just a, a quick uh, aside that during the 50s, the move to integrate public facilities ended up having the unintended consequence of many places around the country had these magnificent public swimming pools. And because suddenly it was required that they be open to all families, black and brown, as well as white, they started to drain those pools. And white families, much like leaving schools for the suburbs or having larger houses in the suburbs, they they left those drained pools in the cities and went and either built built pools in their backyards right. or joined country clubs exactly. or whatever. And so everybody lost, but the people who lost the most from that really were the poorest and blackest and brownest yeah. uh, families in our community. I had never heard that before. That was yeah. like, a, I had, I'm like, what? I have never heard that before. Yeah. And I was, it was funny because just this week I was reading something on Twitter and this woman put up this picture of this big field and she goes, this is one of the pool. This was a place of one of the pools in heaven. I'm like, oh, I, I'm just, I'm, I, I'm still just it's, like flabbergasted. And, and so the, the way that I think of targeted universalism is that we do all have a collective interest in seeing those magnificent pools come back to life. Not all of us, including those of us who are white, me being an example, can afford to build our own <laughs> pool in our backyard or join a country club. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we lose out by the lack of really these magnificent old swimming pools. But we're the, the so, so everybody gains, but the people who gain the most are those, as you say, are furthest right. away right. from having their excellent quality of life. Right. So, yeah, I think it's important to say that everybody has a self-interested stake in refilling those pools. Exactly. And some people have uh, an even more higher intensity uh, interest in seeing that happen, which we need to do with all kinds of things, whether it's wage policies or policies that affect education, mm -hmm. policies that affect our criminal Housing, legal system. Yeah, right, right. All those things. Yeah. Right. And so our unity agenda really talks about these six pillars. So one of them is that we believe that everybody should live in an opportunity-rich neighborhood, right? And then we describe with the systems outcomes what opportunity-rich neighborhoods are, which could be neighborhoods that have good infrastructure, neighborhoods that have good job opportunities, neighborhoods where there are good affordable housing options, neighborhoods where people feel safe, 
like everybody should be able to live in an opportunity rich neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And today in our community, we know that that's not true for a number of people. And so what is it going to take to intervene and create opportunity rich neighborhoods? Right. And I think the other thing, when you go back to Heather McGee's book, The Some of Us, she will, there's a belief, I think, that we are trying to dispel that this is not a zero sum game. Mm-hmm. Right? right. Like creating opportunity rich neighborhoods doesn't take away from somebody else's opportunity rich neighborhood. Right. Yeah. Like we're not, we're not sharing the same pie. Everybody we're does pie better bigger. when everybody, everybody does, does better. better. Right. Right. Yeah. What is your view, Aqua, of the role the children's agenda has been playing in the Rochester Monroe Anti-Poverty Initiative? How are we particularly helpful and how are the groups aligned? I think that for me, the children's agenda, personally, I will tell you that I was not a, so this is this is personal between kind of like you and me, Larry. Okay. I will tell you that. And our listeners. Yeah. Okay. We'll, t- we'll, we'll bring it in. <laughs> we'll bring it a little side story. I didn't know squat about advocacy mm-hmm. or how policies were made or changed at the state level. I had no idea. What's that, a mechanical engineer working for Xerox? I had no idea about no that idea. stuff. No idea. Okay. No idea. So <laughs> I have been, like, voraciously trying to learn how these things happen because policy change is so important. And you, the policy, I mean, the children's agenda is so good at this. Right. Like you guys are like surgically adept at policy change and knowing how to really advocate. And so that is important to our mapping, because once again, your activities and our activities are mutually reinforcing and we don't have to learn it and do it. We can learn from you and you can help us do it. Right. And your focus on children and poor children is completely inter- intertwined with, with the work that we're trying to do. Like, I don't think that we could be in our mapping without the children's agenda. It's a great example about how policy, uh, you know, poverty really is a choice of policy, I think, is the pandemic relief measures that took place that included the expansion of the child tax credit, something that for decades groups like the National uh, Academy of Sciences and Engineering have been saying this is an evidence-based way of lifting people out of poverty, of families with children, particularly young children, if given more of a tax break, that will lift them out of poverty. Mm -hmm. And with the stroke of a pen, with the passage of the pandemic relief, child tax credit was expanded. Three million uh, children overnight were removed from poverty. Food insecurity in New York State drops by 18%, all as a result of that, which unfortunately expired. Unfortunately, Congress failed to renew that last year. The president's budget has uh, called for reinstating that, but we know that uh, there's quite a fight to see that happen in Congress. And why, right? And so who lost, like, who lost in that? The mm-hmm. kids lost in that, mm-hmm. right? Who, who, I, I, it still befuddles me what the fight is on the other side. Right. What are they losing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. It, it's just infuriating. So the, the idea that uh, poverty is a policy oh. choice is really, I think, embedded in both Rochester Monroe Anti-Poverty Initiative as well as the Children's Absolutely. Agenda. Absolutely. And we know that it's not just about, that's an example of, you know, a policy choice. I will tell you that, you know, we talk about small things like fees and fines that are 
you know, really hard for people who are poor who pay the same amount for a fee for a, a something that everybody else pays, yet it's a, a larger burden on them. And they're more apt to be punished even more if they can't, if they can't, if they don't pay it. Right. Like it's, it's just. Well, it's interesting. One of the ways Ramapi has had a big impact on the children's agenda is thinking about this whole area of decriminalizing poverty. Mm. And it's not been something that we have focused on in the past, but because of Ramapi, we realize that, for instance, when you are charged a fee for bail and you can't afford to pay your bail, you stay in prison, you stay in jail. And if you're a parent, your kids are out of luck. What are they going to do? Whereas those families who can't afford to pay their bail are home back with their children that night. So who needs the parents the most? The children from poor families whose parents can't afford to make their bail. I mean, and the other thing is that some of those same parents who uh, can't afford bail, they're in jail for maybe more than a couple of days and they potentially lose the job that they had. And so now you're affecting their income. Like it's a really vicious cycle. Yeah. Right. For the people who, who are the most vulnerable. I do think we have so much mythology about poverty in the United States of America. But when we start talking about children and understanding that they have nothing to do with the circumstances that they're born into or the circumstances that they're raised with or the hardships that they face. That is one inroad to getting the political will that we need for greater policy change to make a different choice to remove poverty from all families' lives, including those with children and those who don't have children. Yeah, that's a really, it's a really interesting point and a really smart strategy, I think, because, you know, I don't know that I've ever really thought about it like that, but it really does, like, children are born, it's not their fault who they're, who they're born to, right. and yet we punish them for the sins of their parents in a way. It, it, it's harder to be Scrooge from A Christmas Carol when it's Tiny Tim, <laughs> exactly. as, as opposed to Tiny Tim's father. Yeah. All right. So anything else that you'd like our listeners to know, Aqua? This has been a wonderful conversation. Are we done? We have a lot of wine left. (laughs) For those who don't know, we're recording this on a Friday afternoon in my office at a conference table. And uh, Aqua brought the Finger Lakes finest for our I think that this could be a thing, like wine with Larry. (laughs) That sounds very good. Sounds good to me. I would just say that You know, even I have evolved as I've taken on this role because I came to this role with my own biases and beliefs about who was poor, why people are poor. You know, I I do believe even I came in with it with like a pull yourself up by the bootstraps, get a really good education. You can pull yourself out of this and you understand when you're in the work that There are so many systems issues, systems barriers that keep people from who want to do it from being able to do it. Right. It's and and in our community, what I also tell people is that we do a really good job of making the poor invisible. Mm -hmm. We don't see them in our community. Right. Like I live in the city and even and, and I know that we have some of the poor zip codes in Rochester, in all of New York State. Mm-hmm. And I'm a city, I live in the city. And yet even I 
can go for months mm -hmm. and never exceed the poverty uh, that are, is, is in some of our communities. So we've done a really good job of making it, segregating even the, the poor communities so that we don't have to see them, which I don't think it's like all the times in other communities, but in here we've done this really good job of making it be like it's that problem over there, Yeah. right? And so it's easier to kind of dismiss it and rationalize why and all those things. And I would just, add, you know, I would just encourage people if they really are interested in learning about what can be done is to kind of, you know, have a conversation with us. Mm -hmm. And what's the website for? It is www.rmapinyrmappynewyork.org. Okay. Well, Aqua Porter, thank you for making the invisible visible. Thank you for your fight against poverty to lift the fortunes of all families in our community, um, those uh, including those with uh, children. Really appreciate all your work. Thank you for being a partner with us. Thank you. For, and thank you for teaching me, Larry. Thank uh, you for teaching me. I've learned a lot. Thank you. Nice. Back at you. Thank you.